0: Welcome to episode 51 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. It's March 7th. And in today's episode, number 51, we're going to talk about yellow fever, a disease that we've mentioned a few times already, but never had the opportunity to dive into. Our guest today is Ermi Engineer Willoughby from Pitzer College in California. Professor Willoughby's research focuses on disease and ecology in North America particularly in the Mississippi Valley, Gulf South, and Caribbean. Ermi examines disease and medicine from a global and ecological perspective, drawing connections between the U.S., the colonial Atlantic, and South Asia.
1: Ermi has published her first book, Yellow Fever, Race and Ecology in 19th Century New Orleans in 2017. The book won the Williams Prize for the best book in Louisiana history. And Ermi has also co-authored a book in 2018, entitled A Primer for Teaching Women, Gender, and Sexuality in World History. Hermia has written several other articles on topics such as yellow fever, the early modern environment, and resources such as sugar. She teaches classes on these topics, as well as disasters in North America and the history of agriculture. So hi, Hermia, and thanks for coming on the podcast.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, so... Yellow fever is actually one of the first diseases I considered from a historical perspective. In one of my classes some time ago, we read Mosquito Empires by John McNeil, who was actually a guest on this show a few months back. And there, John McNeil brings together environmental history and political history, making the connection between both by pointing to human-made environmental change, such as soil erosion, deforestation, and plantation agroecosystems. In this podcast, we've also touched upon yellow fever a few episodes back when Karee spoke to us about perceived immunity of Black workers in the American empires.
0: Yeah, this episode should fit quite well, actually, with Karee's episode, as we hope our conversation with Ermi will examine a similar topic from a broader perspective and perhaps with a different focus. More broadly, it also links to several earlier episodes that focus on specific diseases, and in particular, the intersections of these diseases with questions of race in particular. But before we begin, uh, how are things in Israel, Lee? I know you're a bit under the weather today.
1: Yeah, a bit. Having small children at home is, is a lot of fun. Let's leave it there. But more broadly, elections are, general elections are two and a half weeks ahead, and Israel is reopening again. Now, the government, as I've mentioned in the previous episode or two, the government is implementing different measures to try and convince or maybe force, coerce people to get vaccinated. And as of actually a couple of hours ago, my university released a statement saying that courses will be taught in person after Passover vacation, so in about a month. Classes are supposed to be broadcast online to those students who won't be able to attend, i.e. any student who is not vaccinated. And I'm not sure how these logistics will work, and I can imagine some people, both faculty and students, not really liking this. So I guess we'll, we'll see how things go.
0: I'll say from having talked to a number of people who taught in the hybrid model where some people were online and some people in person, it does not work at all from what everyone has told me.
1: Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, how are students who are not in class supposed to raise their hand? I mean, and how am I as a teacher supposed to look both of the people in class, but also keep looking at the computer screen to see if there's like a small blue hand there, someone who's raising their hand on Zoom I'm not sure and again we'll see there might be a possibility that I won't teach anything in person or anything hybrid and I'll just stay online as of now at least it seems to me to be better but again we'll see we'll see how that develops So how are you Merle have you started hoarding matzos for Passover
0: We've put it on our list of things we have to buy because my son is actually a huge fan of Matza he's been demanding matzo the last six months as a snack actually. A little strange, but, you know, such is life. He has
1: good taste. It's actually like a cracker. So I also used to like matzos when I was younger and maybe when I was not that younger.
0: If anything, it would show he has no taste because they have no taste. But sure, whatever you think, Lee. You should get him the chocolate ones, Merle. No, that's a dessert. And those are actually outrageously expensive, but that's a different discussion. What we did this morning, actually is we visited with some friends, obviously, outside, who live about 45 minutes away, just north of D.C., and it was their first wedding anniversary. So congrats to Josh and Alex. But it was also kind of funny because, as you can imagine, if you think about the timing of this podcast on March 7th, it was the last thing we basically did before everything locked down, I think about three days later. So we went to this big wedding, which was on a Saturday night. You know, no real idea of what was about to happen. And then everything kind of ended about three days later. And as we told them afterwards, if their wedding had been the next week, it would have been almost certainly canceled. So that's one of those kind of crazy events that I'll always remember because of the timing now. When you think
1: back about those events, so the events right before COVID and lockdowns, it really seems like a different world. I guess it's very difficult to imagine something like that happening again today, at least to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think big weddings will happen again. I have no doubt of that. But at least as of right now, not for several more months at the bare minimum. And we have friends who postponed their wedding, right, for like a year or a year and a half, the actual formal ceremony, because of COVID, because they couldn't get people to come together, obviously, for good reasons. But where are you, Ermi, and how are things there?
2: I'm in Southern California in Los Angeles County. Um, kind of on the border of Los Angeles and San Bernardino counties. It's going okay here. I think people are getting excited about stuff opening again. Um, I guess Disneyland is supposed to open in a month and then things will be really back to normal around here. Yeah, the vaccinations are, are going pretty well, I think. Pretty much everyone now who works, like instructors, Farm workers, all the essential workers and grocery store workers are eligible to be vaccinated. And uh, yeah, it it seems like it's going much better than before. And our uh, colleges, the Claremont colleges are supposed to open in the fall. And the assumption is at least most of the faculty will be vaccinated by then.
1: So your teaching now is online, all online?
2: Yeah, it's all online. At the beginning, in the fall, there was a chance that they would have students back on campus and we would have classes in person, but LA County forbade any higher education institutions from having in-person classes, so the campuses have been closed, and um, yeah, there are no students back there yet, but a lot of students still live in the Claremont area and have apartments and are kind of living semi-normal lives and just doing their classes online
0: yeah it's interesting how different colleges, especially smaller ones, some of them were able to go online and some of them were doing in person, but it obviously, as you said, it depends a lot upon the municipality and the states that they're in. But with that, maybe we can turn to the interview and as the running joke on this podcast, I'll ask the easy first question, which is never easy. Could you maybe just tell our listeners what is yellow fever first? And then we will go into some details.
2: Yeah, and I guess that's sort of an easy question, um, depending on how much detail you want me to get into. Um, Yellow fever is a viral infection, an acute viral infection that's spread by mosquitoes. It's an arbovirus. It's believed to be originated in uh, West Africa or Central West Africa, and genomic evidence Points to it having um, a pretty old history, but not nearly as old as something like malaria. It's somewhere between maybe 1500 and 3000 years old. Um, It's spread by a number of different mosquitoes. Uh, The most famous is Aedes aegypti. Uh, That was the mosquito that was responsible for spreading yellow fever throughout the Atlantic world in the 17th through 19th centuries. Um, But it's also capable of being spread by other types of 80s mosquitoes, and then other species of mosquitoes in South America, Haemagogus mosquitoes in the Amazonian rainforest and Brazil. Um, so yeah, there are a number of wild mosquitoes that can spread it and also Aedes aegypti, which uh, is often described by entomologists as a domesticated mosquito that lives close to humans, breeding in man-made water containers and um, being anthrophilic and preferring human blood to other primates and mammals.
1: So what are the effects of yellow fever on humans?
2: Oh, yeah, good question. It's a pretty gruesome disease and it passes through the body very quickly. So after a person gets bitten by an infected mosquito in about three to six days, um, they'll start experiencing mild symptoms, which includes fever, chills, um, very intense head and body aches. If someone uh, survives the mild phase, then they can gain immunity for their lifetime. But if they move into the toxic or severe phase, um, they'll experience um, really awful symptoms, including liver failure, jaundice, internal hemorrhaging, kidney failure. The mortality rate is very high for people who move into this toxic phase. It can be up to 50%. And kind of the, the telltale symptom of yellow fever is... Uh, Black vomit or vomito negro, it's kind of what it sounds like, Uh, someone um, vomits coagulated blood and a lot of the physicians who inspected it, it was kind of a new disease in the 17th and 18th centuries, described the vomited digested blood as being of the consistency of coffee grounds. So that's kind of in the literature when you see that description, you know, that there was yellow fever, most likely.
1: So why is it called yellow fever? Because of the John Dice, I
2: guess? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, during the 18th century, especially, but 18th and 19th centuries, ships that had been infected with yellow fever would have a yellow flag or a yellow jack as well.
0: Out of curiosity, how many people or what percentage do we have a sense go or develop mild versus severe symptoms? You know, are we talking like Fifty percent, or five percent, or how it, how does that shake out?
2: That's a really tough question to figure out, and estimates could be anywhere from you know uh, ten to fifty percent. But it's really hard to tell because even today, and especially in the period that I study, it's really difficult to diagnose mild cases of yellow fever because they're so similar to malaria and other fevers um, and other infections of the time. So. Um, in the records, the, you know, if there was an epidemic, we can assume that there were mild cases, but for the most part, only the severe cases would be recorded. And then it seems like based on those, there's a very high mortality rate, but it's probably lower if we can assume that there are a lot of people that just didn't, didn't think they had yellow fever and were not diagnosed with yellow fever.
1: So where has yellow fever been found historically? Where did it originate, when, and where did it move to?
2: That's actually a really, really interesting question because we know now from genomic evidence that it originated in somewhere in tropical Africa, but uh, the first epidemics in recorded history were in the Caribbean in the 1640s, and yellow fever was not recorded in uh, West Africa until the mid to late 18th century. But... Uh, In the 1640s, there were a series of epidemics in the Caribbean and also uh, on the Gulf Coast of Mexico. The first recorded epidemic was in Barbados in 1647, and then some of the other Caribbean islands in Guadalupe, St. Kitts. There was a large epidemic in Cuba in 1649. Um, There were a few epidemics later in the 1680s in Brazil. Um, from 1685 to 1692. And then there were no epidemics reported in Brazil until 1849. The history of kind of tracing the spread of yellow fever around the world is fascinating because there were these epidemics in the Caribbean. And then it seemed to spread uh, northward to uh, the North American colonies and also to Europe, to um, the Iberian coast. So there were epidemics in Boston, Philadelphia, Charleston, and New York in the 1690s and early 1700s. Um, and then in uh, kind of simultaneously, there were epidemics in Cadiz, Lisbon, and Malaga in Europe. So this was all before it was recorded in West Africa. It's hard to pinpoint the first uh, outbreaks in West Africa, but um, in the 17, late 1780s and 1790s, there are some clear epidemics. And that's when there was what I would describe, and some historians have called uh, the first global pandemic of yellow fever, where it spread from Bolama Island, which is off the coast of Sierra Leone, to the Caribbean, um, to Haiti during the Haitian Revolution. It's possible. um, Some historians have argued that's where uh, the epidemic began, and then from there to Philadelphia and New York.
0: So that's the historical outbreaks of yellow fever. Does it still exist today? And if so, where is it found? And What's its impact like before we transition to talk more in detail about the history?
2: Yeah, it does exist today, and it's confined really to the tropics of Africa and South America. There were some pretty significant outbreaks in Angola and Brazil in 2016 and 2017, and I think that there are possibilities for its reemergence in some of those areas. It has not been... Uh, as prevalent in port cities or anywhere else in in temperate zones since, oh gosh, I want to say since the the 1950s, but uh, there were a series of outbreaks throughout areas of Africa, in East Africa, in Ethiopia, that had never had yellow fever before in the 1950s through 1990s as well.
1: Would you say that people today are afraid of yellow fever in the same sense that they are afraid of, let's say, Ebola, for example?
2: I don't think most people are afraid of yellow fever in the same way. It doesn't have as much of an impact. But I think that, uh, you know, especially compared to the early modern period through about 1900, when many people feared yellow fever as one of the most dangerous and impactful diseases in the Atlantic world, I think there are many more diseases that that arouse more fear today than yellow fever, probably because of its regional more re- regionally based now and it doesn't spread beyond those areas to i guess to north america and europe
1: so looking back to the past to the early modern period how did people back then think about yellow fever so and, spe- and specifically about its origins where did it come from did they think it was a new world disease and maybe were concerned afraid didn't want to encounter it because it was a new world thing or
2: yeah, it, it's actually really fascinating to think about yellow fever as an emerging disease or an emergent disease in the, the 1600s. Uh, it was uh, very different than diseases that people were accustomed to. And for a long time, um, really into the 20th century, most many people believed that it was indigenous to the Americas because that's where the first outbreaks were. And European colonizers and slave traders didn't encounter it in West Africa until much later. A lot of the kind of famous yellow fever scientists who wrote about the disease in the late 19th century and early 20th century also um, discussed epidemics in the late 15th century and 16th century that now uh, are believed not to be yellow fever. But uh, yeah, there were many doctors that, that believed it was an American disease and then grew in the Atlantic world and then spread to Europe and Africa. But there are also some some interesting racial dimensions that towards the, the turn of the 20th century, there were um, yellow fever researchers that believed that uh, people of African descent and Africans were immune to yellow fever and that it must have been endemic there for a long time. And then with recent genomic studies of the virus, it was confirmed that it was of West African origin.
1: So you're saying that people in the late 19th century, early 20th century, hypothesized that yellow fever came from Africa because Black people seemed more immune to yellow fever?
2: Yeah, there's a long history of the developments amongst especially medical doctors in the American South and the colonial Caribbean, more generally, um, a belief in racial immunity to yellow fever. And as yellow fever became endemic in West African port cities, it was more likely that people coming from West Africa or people native to the Caribbean would have acquired immunities during childhood. So there was a misconception of racial immunity that led some researchers early on to hypothesize that it originated in West Africa.
0: So how do we think today as researchers, yellow fever moved from West Africa to the Caribbean? Presumably the slave trade was a primary way in which this moved, but how did this process develop?
2: Yeah, that I think that that's a question that is is really difficult to answer because it obviously moved to the Americas via the slave trade um, and other, you know, uh, trade vessels from West Africa to the Caribbean. But specifically, it's very hard to say because there's no evidence that shows where it existed prior to those epidemics in the 1640s. But Uh, In some cases, it's easier to trace. In my research, I've been able to trace some of what we would describe as the intermediate cycle of yellow fever, where it transfers from um, monkeys or other primates to humans and then creates epidemics among unimmunized people. But I think more generally, maybe to answer your question, um, during the era of the slave trade, and especially with the intensification of the slave trade, And as the slave trade peaked and there was more demand and um, enslaved people were moved from interior, more forested regions of tropical Africa to uh, slave forts um, on the coast, in those circumstances, if the virus was present, it would be able to spread to enslaved people who would then transmit it along with the crews and captains of ships to the Americas. Another important thing to note about the growth of these uh, yellow fever epidemics and disease environments that fostered yellow fever is that processes related to plantation slavery and the establishment of plantations, such as deforestation, um, the clearing of swamps and bogs and marshes, um, urban development and the construction of settlements and farms. um, A lot of these processes ended up attracting Aedes aegypti mosquitoes and creating environments where if the virus was introduced, it could spread very quickly.
1: Okay. So what did, so again, thinking about the 16th, 17, 18th, 19th century, how did they understand all of this? Did they understand that what they were doing, that is to say draining swamps, putting up all these plantations, did they understand that this was correlated with more yellow fever cases, for example? Did they mention mosquitoes at all as something that might be relevant? I mean, when does that idea come in at all?
2: Um, those are tough questions because there's so much diversity in the Caribbean and amongst doctors and other residents, how they understood the disease. In the 19th century, there were some more coherent theories as doctors agreed that yellow fever was a specific disease and they tried to um, distinguish it from malaria and yellow fever and other country fevers. So. There are doctors who were amazingly accurate in drawing connections between environmental change and mosquitoes and standing water and epidemics, but they were pretty rare until the first researcher that argued that mosquitoes spread yellow fever was in the 1870s, Carlos Finlay in Cuba. But there were some other examples that I write about in my book that are just so striking that some some doctors observe changes in the mosquito species that they find in the city. And um, their descriptions are so intricate, they'll say that, you know, the mosquitoes used to be pale and yellow and brown, and now they're larger, they have a more aggressive sting, they have silvery bands on them. So when I read that, I can kind of see this process of Aedes aegypti mosquitoes occupying cities. But for the most part, in the 19th century in North America, for the most part, people believed that these fevers, there was intense debate, but that they either arose from miasmas emanating from swamps or marshes or um, even urban filth and decay, uh, or they believed it was contagious and coming from usually the Caribbean or from incoming transatlantic ships that they believed were infected. And those people uh, promoted quarantine. Um, there was a quarantine station um, outside of New Orleans. Um, like it's like in many North American port cities But there was a lot of resistance to quarantine as well because of the kinds of goods coming in and passenger ships as well. There were so many. And uh, through the 1850s, New Orleans, which is um, the focus of my work, was an unregulated port city. So people could come in without licenses. There was a lot of trade and interactivity um, that allowed allowed it to be kind of a focus of the infection. So
0: I think that's a good segue to... Look into your work in particular, where you focus on New Orleans. So, maybe you can tell us first what makes New Orleans an interesting, useful lens to explore the question of yellow fever.
2: I think New Orleans is kind of a unique lens to study the history of yellow fever because it is kind of on a different timeline than the rest of yellow fever epidemics in the Atlantic world. The first epidemic in New Orleans was in 1796 um, after the North American colonies in the Caribbean, and especially Philadelphia and New York had already had, and Charleston had experiences with yellow fever. Um, but I think New Orleans is interesting, just it has a really fascinating history as being as being a completely undeveloped region that was colonial capital for several different empires. It's a good place to study yellow fever also because of the series of uh, migrations from the Caribbean, from West Africa, uh, also from the United States later on. So you can see these waves of migrants and how, how they're affected by the seasonal endemicity of yellow fever. I think in general, New Orleans, as a city in, in the United States, which is the period that I study the most, it was one of the most active uh, slave ports in the country. So it had more contact with the Caribbean and West Africa. And in the South, in the U.S. South, it was kind of the center of medical education. And New Orleans doesn't feel as much like an important cosmopolitan urban center these days, but it was very much so in the 19th century. And it was one of the major destinations for uh, European immigrants as well.
1: So could you maybe tell us a bit about the sources that you used to study New Orleans and yellow fever in it in this time period?
2: The sources that I used included um, a lot of uh, medical journal articles by contemporary doctors in and around New Orleans and Mobile and the, the Gulf South more generally. I also uh, used as many studies as I, as I could find about information circulating in the Atlantic world about yellow fever and ideas about prevention and the cause and immunity. I also studied plantation records and uh, plantation journals to try to understand the relationship between um, sugar plantations that surrounded New Orleans and the urban environment. I also used kind of other standard historical sources. I had a really interesting diary from a teenager who lived in New Orleans during the Civil War. And she described how when the Yankees would come down that they would all die of yellow fever and that they would also get bitten by mosquitoes because they love to torment Yankees. That's what she said. So just to kind of to get a broader picture of residents and medical experts in New Orleans, I collected those kinds of sources and then also uh, tried to study uh, environmental change by looking at a lot of the, the medical sources are really useful in terms of thinking about environmental change as doctors prior to the bacteriological revolution, especially made really extensive notes about environmental factors and features that they associated with yellow fever, but also with cholera, which was a problem in New Orleans at the time. Um, yeah, so that's kind of a rough sketch of the kinds of sources that I used. Yeah,
0: I think that was actually a good question, because as our listeners know, Lee and I are medieval historians. I guess you're a Byzantinist Lee. Can I call you a medievalist Lee?
1: I'm a medievalist wannabe, I guess. I want be medievalist.
0: But in any case, always hearing stories about diaries and different types of stuff that we don't have is always interesting because that's very different source based than we have. Your question about environmental sources just brought up a random question, which is, have people done long term environmental data on New Orleans and its surrounding regions here? I think in our field, we do a lot of, for example, pollen coring to figure out land use? And is that something that has been done and been brought into more recent history works?
2: Yeah, there has been a lot of work. I think actually New Orleans, maybe because of its unique situation and its kind of sinking situation and all of the the engineering around the Mississippi River has led to, there There has been quite a lot of work on the history of New Orleans landscape. And in my my newer research that I'm doing, I'm working with more archaeology and um, trying to to reconstruct some of that early history as um, every time there would be a flood or if the levee had to be reconstructed, there would just, you know, lots of material culture would be buried. And in the late 20th century, a lot of these sites were designated with the the National Register of Historic Places so that before they did any kind of construction, there would have to be a team of archaeologists to come in and survey that area. So there's a pretty good collection of archaeological studies now that I think would be would be more helpful. Yeah, I, I thought it was just also interesting because that kind of research in terms of trying to reconstruct the climate and the temperatures and rainfall in New Orleans... Um, it does seem like there was an El-, El Nino episode in the late 1870s and then also confirmed by a lot of the doctors in the area would measure rainfall and record yeah. temperatures that it does seem like there was a higher concentration of rainfall and more mosquitoes before what was the the worst epidemic in the Mississippi Valley in 1878.
0: Yeah, it makes sense, as you said it, that New Orleans itself would have the most work done on it, just because of the current environmental ecological situation, right? Both that you can do the work and people wanna know, like, can we stop another flood, broadly
1: construed. So to get back to the sources, the red end sources, considering what you've said earlier, can you be certain when you differentiate between, let's say yellow fever and malaria? Is that a problem when working with your sources?
2: When working with my sources, uh, especially in the 19th century, it's not as difficult to distinguish. But I think when you actually look at uh, a doctors' records and their descriptions of patients, then it can be. If you're trying to judge whether or not they they made the right diagnosis, I think then it's difficult because just the way that they they write about patients and symptoms, it, it's very different than than the straightforward manner which a, a doctor would record today. So yeah, I just think that it's it's easier to tell, especially in the city of New Orleans, when there are epidemics, because there will be so many cases of Black vomit that you know that in that year there was an epidemic. And then maybe the next year or the next two years, there won't be that kind of impact, but then there will be a few years later. So I think early epidemics are harder to distinguish whether they were yellow fever or something else. Um, there were some epidemics that are claimed to be yellow fever in Mobile and Biloxi right around New Orleans when they were settled, there isn't as detailed of a description of the symptoms to be certain. But uh, in New Orleans, especially after 1817, when there were immigrants or migrants from the US American states, and then also immigrants from Europe coming, there would just be huge mortality numbers that signified an epidemic that wouldn't have been malaria because malaria was more chronic and didn't have the same mortality mortality rates.
0: So one thing that Lee and I often get asked when we give talks on our own pandemic is differential impact on different groups, right? So whether it be by race, class, gender, do you have some of that information as well in New Orleans on the disparate impacts? Is it killing all poor people and all the rich people are fine on top of the hill? What kind of differentiation do you have?
2: In the earlier part of the 19th century, in the early to mid 19th century, uh, many residents of New Orleans believed that natives to New Orleans Creoles, as they were, as they identified themselves, were immune to yellow fever. And this idea of Creole immunity and the idea that yellow fever was a stranger's disease was really uh, prominent amongst New Orleans residents and visitors and doctors as well. For, uh, through the 1840s and 50s, there was a gradual shift in medical beliefs towards not believing in Creole immunity and advocating ideas of race-based immunity that people of African descent were immune. It's really difficult to measure how, how much epidemics in the city affected African-American residents. But... Um, The majority of victims that were recorded were uh, American migrants from the eastern states and European immigrants, especially European immigrants who uh, worked uh, in construction of canals, railroads, um, other types of warehouse and wharf jobs that would put them in close proximity to mosquitoes. A lot of the elite French people that lived in New Orleans Uh, Didn't believe that they were susceptible to yellow fever. So there was kind of a class disparity, and that was exacerbated also because uh, affluent people during yellow fever epidemics or right before what they described as the sickly season, right before the summer rainy season, they would leave the city and go somewhere that they considered safe, either to the north or to their country estate, somewhere where they believed they were safe from yellow fever, which they saw as uh, an urban disease that inflicted New Orleans. Um, That would change in the 1850s with the construction of rail lines and new networks between the northern cities through the Mississippi River, through the Ohio Valley and Mississippi Valley. But for much of the 19th century, it was just relegated to the, the coast and cities. Kind of the other important thing to note is that during these epidemics, any children or anyone who remained in the city and became infected and survived would have become immune. So, the populations especially the populations of children who were exposed to yellow fever often would even think that they were immune or believe that they were immune because of this idea of creole immunity and then of course children of affluence often um, the american population who had the means to leave and could leave they would be more susceptible as an adult if they encountered yellow fever
1: so when if at all, I mean, I guess it happens at some point. When does the government, local, regional, federal, start using statistics to try and answer some of these questions, right? To try and understand which populations in New Orleans are more sick, which populations die more, Where, where's the higher mortality? I'm asking because to take a comparison, I've looked at censuses from India in the context of the third pandemic. And there you have a census every decade, and you really see how the censuses improve improved methodologically. They just, from the, the late 19th century into the early 20th century, they start bringing in more and more of these essentially statistical tools to be able to provide more information for, I guess, decision makers or politicians back then. So do you see anything similar like to that in New Orleans?
2: Yeah, I, I don't think, I, I can't think of anything very similar. And maybe that's because By the time those kinds of statistics would have been in play, um, in New Orleans, epidemics kind of subsided during the Civil War, the American Civil War, and there was a horrible epidemic where there are a lot of statistics that were taken in 1878, but there weren't as many epidemics and they were not as severe. So I think in the late 19th century, that kind of record keeping, I don't see it as much. And it's very, it's very strange. In New Orleans, I think there was a real effort to prevent the public from being aware of epidemics. They wanted to prevent fear. I guess this is a theme in the history of epidemics. There was just a lot of vigorous debate about how, portraying New Orleans as a healthy city, of not, not reporting when there were small outbreaks in the city if they didn't spread. So yeah, those kinds of statistics are, are, are difficult to find, honestly.
0: So, Within your research, do you see at any level differences to how people are thinking about yellow fever in New Orleans and reacting to it? Or is it one of continuity across a long time period?
2: There are definitely differences or changes in the way that people thought about yellow fever, especially as it became more of a yearly menace in the city. There's just so much diversity, though, amongst the residents. Some of them kind of saw yellow fever as an inevitable fact of life that would come to the city. Um, people who were native to the city often believed they were immune, so they were not afraid of yellow fever, whereas a lot of the, the population of newcomers would express many fears. I think the most important change over over time is amongst uh, the medical community, which also filters to popular ideas about yellow fever, in which the city's Black residents were blamed or feared. Um, it was believed that when the epidemic of 1853 began, which was uh, the worst epidemic uh, in New Orleans' history, that uh, there were fears of slave insurrections. There were uh, laws uh, enacted to prevent people of color and Black people from congregating and opening their stores. So. I think that those kinds of racial fears escalate, especially, um, you know, in tandem with sectional tensions that, that rise as the Civil War approaches in um, in the U.S. and in the South. So I think that that's a place where you can definitely see a change.
1: So you mentioned that the medical authorities, I guess, preferred not to discuss yellow fever too openly with the general population. But how was public discourse, let's say, in newspapers in in like the first half or the mid 19th century uh, in the context of yellow fever, did they talk about yellow fever? Was this openly discussed on those platforms?
2: And I guess I should, I should backtrack a little bit and say that, uh, doctors and especially the public health boards tried to, uh, prevent mass fear of epidemics, but they wrote about it extensively as, as a major problem in New Orleans. Um, when it comes to the newspapers, Early on, newspapers will try to avoid, especially the, the New Orleans Times-Picayune, which was the major newspaper of the area, to try to avoid panic, to avoid reporting early cases. But there are accounts of yellow fever and a lot of, uh, a lot of the newspaper articles try to trace the origin of epidemics to specific ships that are coming in from the Caribbean. So there is a lot of theorizing of why epidemics happen once it's evident that there is an epidemic in the city. Each sickly season, there will be kind of an avoidance of the issue in the public discourse until until and unless it's necessary to try to deal with this public health crisis.
0: So we're moving toward the end, and maybe we can zoom out now that we've discussed New Orleans and ask a couple of questions on that end. The first is, you know, you've done a lot of work on one city, but could we use similar methodologies in other places? whether it be, say, Philadelphia has a famous yellow fever outbreak, or you've mentioned other cities in the United States or across the world. How might that look and how could your work help develop the field further?
2: Yeah, I think that my work on New Orleans is the the most interesting aspect of it is the tracing the history of environmental change and urbanization and the construction of communication and transportation networks. And the relationship between a metropole and a a colony that's essentially surrounding that metropole. And I think that that model, when you think about the Caribbean, or even in my new work on tracing the history of malaria and the growth of endemic disease environments, I think that aspect of my work can be used broader histories of European colonization and the growth of new disease environments and urban diseases that follow colonialism and imperialism. I think that also, My research on kind of the local history of doctors and their ideas about immunity and especially racial immunity, you know, the timeline in New Orleans is different than some parts of the Caribbean and other European imperial spaces illuminates this history of how these false conceptions of racial immunity can develop based on observations, which, you know, in New Orleans, the European immigrant population was a very... A visible group of yellow fever victims. You know, one thing I had kind of hoped to talk about, you mentioned Philadelphia, and I don't know if you've had any other guests that talked about that famous epidemic in 1793 in Philadelphia, but that epidemic and the episode in the 1853 epidemic in New Orleans that I mentioned when fear of a slave insurrection amongst the white population um, in 1793 in Philadelphia. Very famously, Benjamin Rush requested that the African-American population work as nurses and grave diggers and street cleaners. And they died in the same proportion as the white population. And in my research on Memphis uh, in 1878, which was a destination of a lot of freed African-Americans after the Civil War, there was an idea that African-Americans were immune, especially by that time that was very prominent. And um, some black doctors from the North came to Memphis many of them died of yellow fever, a large proportion of the African-American population in Memphis who had come from places other than yellow fever endemic zones were victims. So um, I think that that's a place where kind of when you study urban history and the way that certain racial groups were targeted or blamed or descriptions of white jealousy towards people that they, they thought were immune, those themes come up a lot in in urban histories
1: of yellow fever. So that's actually a pretty good segue into what is becoming a a new traditional final question, I guess, which is how does your work about yellow fever help us understand COVID or help us understand the present pandemic we're currently living through, if at all,
2: Yeah, I'd like to think it should help us understand the the COVID pandemic and um, what I just mentioned kind of about this idea of essential workers and also people who get to flee or isolate themselves and avoid infection during epidemics. I think there are a lot of parallels that can be drawn uh, to COVID and lessons that can be learned about how to properly protect essential workers and to not put the bodies of people of color on the front lines more so than the white population. So I think that's, that's a lesson. You know, my work, a lot of, a lot of my interest has to do with the growth and establishment of disease environments and especially disease vectors and how they become part of the human, become entrenched in the human community and become domesticated. It's not as relevant to, to COVID because COVID is so much reliant on human bodies to spread, whereas Yellow fever, at least the thought for a long time, was that it could be eliminated by targeting mosquitoes. But I guess
1: you could make the point that the economic systems in which we live in today that gave rise to these emerging infectious diseases, such as COVID, have parallels in the 16th till 19th century. Similar-ish, I guess, economic systems that gave rise to yellow fever.
2: Yeah, certainly. I think that's a really good way to put it, that a lot of the human activity that led yellow fever to become such a problem in the Atlantic world had to do with, I guess, what we would think of as modern advancements, development, improvements and rapid transportation, also the mass movement of migrants and enslaved people. So I think that those kinds of processes are certainly tied to COVID as well, when we trace the spread of the infection.
0: So I think that's a really good note to end on. So I just wanted to thank you so much, Ermi, for coming on the podcast.
2: Thanks, Merlin Lee. It was really great to talk to you.
0: Great. Hey, thanks so much, Ermi. It was great. So I thought that that was a really great episode to pair with Karees from a few weeks back, which I have to say, Lee, at least on my end, I didn't plan when we put our guest list together that we would have two people touching upon fairly similar topics.
1: Yeah, I know this because otherwise you would just try to make this into a mini arc. Are
0: you saying you don't like my mini
1: arcs that I put together? I mean, let's put it this way. Some of them have been good. Others have been, let's say, less
0: relevant to be a mini arc? Everything is a social construct, Lee. So an arc is how you want to define it to be.
1: I feel that's like your go-to sentence to kind of end conversations. So yeah, if that helps you understand life. So yes, Merle, everything is a social construct. And I'm still waiting for the Foucault
0: episode, by the way. It's my trump card, we might say. But On a serious note, I thought they both touched upon questions of racial immunity, which was something of interest and something I think is important within that field as a whole. Right. Whereas Ermi was
1: really looking at one case study in depth over time, whereas Kareed looked at racial immunity much more broadly from a broader perspective, I guess nationwide as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. And so I think it hopefully gave our listeners a a long durée and a deep study of what was happening and how this idea has played out, continues to play out to today. Right. So one of
1: the issues I kind of thought about as Ernie was speaking was about numbers. And I guess, Merle, you like to think that I'm some kind of quantitative type person I and mean, whatever, okay. But I still think that some... Some things you said were actually pretty interesting, and I found some parallels between them and the kind of work I do. And you asked about the really ratio between mild cases of yellow fever and severe cases of yellow fever. And she pointed out that there was actually no good data on that, even in, in a modern context. And that reminded me of my work on plague, on, on modern plague, that is, and the fact that even in these diseases that we think are important and that we think that a lot of work has been done on them. Once you try to zoom into the nitty gritty number details, it was very surprising to me to realize that actually those numbers are not as concrete as we might think, right? So even cases such as here, right? Mild versus severe cases, what percentage of people with bubonic plague would develop pneumonic plague?
0: Yeah, I mean... I have to say, when I asked her the question, it was just an offhand curiosity, right? How many people get this, but how many people get really sick from this and how many people die? And she made the very good point, I thought, that you actually can't tell, right? Because from the sources you have, it just says someone got a fever or someone got chills, so they might have had influenza or they might have had really a whole host of diseases. And so that really skews... A lot of the ways that you think about these things, because you only get the data out of the severe cases, as it were, and then what does that really mean for how it functions within the rest of society is actually far less clear than we might think.
1: And there are obvious comparisons to COVID. COVID both with regards to asymptomatic carriers and with regards to people who just have mild cases and aren't really known to have had COVID. At least that's like a big deal currently in Israel, trying to figure out the the real numbers. But another point about numbers, I think, was the statistics. Uh, The fact that statistics were more or less absent in New Orleans, which I thought was interesting, interesting to point out. And that might be a cultural issue. So I remember kind of offhandedly that I looked at play cases in Palestine, in mandatory Palestine. So early 20th century Palestine under British rule. And there they did put up statistics, even though the outbreaks of plague were, were not significant. They were not important. They didn't come up with any drastic effect, but they obviously wanted to organize the British, I mean, obviously wanted to organize whatever data they had in that specific format. So they put up a chart drawing comparisons between Jews and Christians and Muslims. It's interesting to think about these cultural differences that really define the, the output, the administrative, scientific output in in each of these cultures based, uh, I guess, on cultural preferences.
0: It almost sounds like you're saying statistics are a social construct, Lee.
1: (laughs) And I guess that's your not so subtle hint of let's move on.
0: No, it actually wasn't. It was just that's the conclusion you arrived at to an extent on that point, which I think is spot on. It's just it was so natural.
1: Yeah, in a sense it is, and if we take that point and maybe extend it a bit further, I think this ties into one of your points, Merle, of trying to consider that the people behind these diseases rather than the statistics, that's one of your talking points.
0: Yeah, no, that's fair. I think that's an interesting way forward, which is also, I think, some of what she's doing, whether it be with diaries, as she mentioned, or newspaper accounts that maybe give you a better sense of what's happening on the ground. Although there, she seemed to suggest that there is a real tension between wanting to report what's happening and not wanting to cause fear.
1: Yeah, that was actually interesting to me as well. So she said that in New Orleans, the newspapers did not want to cause fear. So they really tried to prevent people from panicking. Whereas if you think about modern media, you could probably make the opposite point in which modern media would actually want people to panic because that way they sell more. And I think that's what you could see in the case of Ebola, for example.
0: Yeah, it reminded me of one of your favorite movies, like Panic in the Streets, which is about New Orleans and the plague in the early 1950s, actually. And I
1: don't know if you remember this, but there's actually a scene there with the media as well In the movie, they're trying to prevent the media from publishing the story because they don't want to cause panic. And I guess media just does not operate the same way anymore.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Although maybe you should start a new media company, Lee, and then you can only do boring, uninteresting headlines about man finding dog that was lost down the street.
1: I don't think that would be sustainable, Merle. Sorry. (laughs) That's fair.
0: Speaking of dogs, Lee... I know you have a dog, listeners know you also have a daughter. So how do they get along? I know your dog is temperamental sometimes, if I may say so. So does he like your daughter?
1: So we adopted our dog 10 years ago from his shelter. He had issues before he got to us. And I guess he still has some remnants of issues. He did not get along with kids at all until we had our daughter. And actually at the shelter, when we adopted him, the woman there told us that if you're planning kids, this is probably not the best dog to bring home. Yeah, so my wife was kind of concerned for a while at least until she, she got to like the dog. But yeah, it's been challenging. So I think the issue is much more getting the dog to tolerate my daughter My daughter is very interested in this furry creature that keeps walking around. And I think our dog was the first object she knew to identify. So we could ask her, where's the dog? And she could point at the dog way before she could point at any of us, by the way, which was interesting. So she likes him and he kind of tried to ignore her for almost a year, for almost the first year of her life. And I think recently, as of let's say the past month or two, he has been opening up, so he allows her to pet him and he doesn't just snarl at her, although he he still would walk away if he could. sometimes he's just like too sleepy so he doesn't care. but if he can help it, you he just like distance
0: himself. you know Lee, you need to do the thing that I love to do with small children and dogs, which is put your daughter on your dog so that she can ride him. So if you want me to make you a special saddle, I will help out with that. You are aware that they weigh the same now. Yeah, that's fair. But I'll make a special saddle. We'll make this work.
1: Yeah, go for it, Merle. Go for it and ship it here. But how are you? How are your kids with dogs or pets in general? I mean, They don't have any pets, I guess, right?
0: No, so my son is very scared of dogs for the most part. He just kind of avoids them, like the plague, you might say. And my daughter actually really likes dogs. So she wants to play with them all and she likes when they lick her face. So my friends we saw today, they have a greyhound, which is obviously a very large dog, but she really liked hanging out with the dog. She just wanted the dog to lick her face and she wanted to pet him. And so that was kind of nice to see.
1: Yeah, one of my daughter's favorite pastimes is to go to the dog park and then just look at the other dogs and kind of try to pet them, some of them, She's kind of a bit scared of the big ones, but she also does want to look at them and kind of like be next to them. So it's it's fun.
0: Nice. That sounds like you're raising her properly to appreciate all the dogs. Yeah. So, on this uh,
1: doggy note, I guess we can conclude this episode. And as usual, we'd like to thank the LePage Center for funding us. And of course, our webmaster, Veridur Kanati, for taking care of. Everything web and website
0: related. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and send us some cute dog photos.